Welcome to episode 28 of my book review podcast, Unknown Friends. I am your host, Rochelle Ferguson of Kitty Wham Productions, and thanks so much for tuning in this week. I hope you are excited. If you remember my announcement at the end of last week's episode, today you don't have to listen to my voice as much as usual because I have a guest on the show this week for our discussion of the novel Mrs. Dalloway, written by 20th century writer Virginia Woolf. I am joined today by my sister Lorraine, joining via Zoom from clear across the Atlantic in the United Kingdom. Now, Lorraine is no longer a Ferguson. She got married this summer, so I get to introduce her as Lorraine Cherikara, and she is a PhD candidate at the University of Oxford, studying classical languages and literature and writing her dissertation on the Apostle Paul's use of the concept of grace in the New Testament. So she's you know, mildly intelligent. Um, And I am so very glad to have her on the podcast today to help me talk about Mrs. Dalloway. Lorraine, it's so great to have you joining me today. Thanks for asking me to. Well, thanks for agreeing to discuss Mrs. Dalloway with me. My pleasure. Well, let's get right into it. So, Virginia Woolf is an author I have not studied. (laughs) And not read much from. And in fact, her contemporaries, I feel like I know little about. Uh, I've never read any James Joyce. Hate to admit it, but I've never read any James Joyce. So, but I know you took a class on this era at Hillsdale. And uh, so I would love to hear from you. You know, what interested you in this era? or, Or just more generally, you know, what can you tell us? about this set of authors, this genre, I suppose, mm. of literature and what it what it contributed to uh, the great conversation. Thanks. Um, I can't quite remember precisely why I chose this class. The title was High Modernism in the British Isles. Mm. So we focused on British high modernist writers, which I'll explain what I mean by that term in a second. Okay. And expats. So Virginia Woolf, James Joyce, Ezra Pound, and T.S. Eliot. There were others in high modernism as a whole, but those are the ones I'm most familiar with. And I think I took it as an extension of my interest in Victorian literature. Um, I wanted to read more T.S. Eliot. I don't think at that point I'd ever read Virginia Woolf. I might have encountered James Joyce at some point, but very, very little. And I actually really enjoyed Ezra Pound when I read him, but um, didn't read loads of him. So we focused on those four authors. And I really enjoyed the professor. Um, I'll share a few of his insights in a moment okay. that have really helped me in kind of unpacking the big questions of high modernism. Yes. And it was a, it was a lovely class um, and really opened up an approach to literature that I'd never considered before. Sure. And helped me then think about Victorian literature in contrast to that. Mm. And then also postmodernism, following it, seeing it all in kind of a progression. So... High literary modernism. Mm -hmm. This is different from what we typically think of when we refer to modernism. Usually with that, we're talking Cold War era architecture, an emphasis on the mastery of nature by humans, a trust in science and technology kind of to save the world. None of that is what we're referring to with high literary modernism. So this movement, which Virginia Woolf was right at the heart of, 
was active in the period between the world wars. So roughly 1915 to 1915 So the Victorian take on Aristotle was highly influenced by Christianity, of course, but in the wider culture, it was often very earthbound, becoming almost a prosperity gospel. You know, mm. if we live good Christian lives, so to speak, we can civilize the whole world, enjoy peace and prosperity, and enjoy God's favor. Mm. Um, needless to say, the horrors of World War I caused much of this confidence to crash and burn. Mm -hmm. So following that war, Philosophers, artists, writers, they all began looking for some new way to make sense of human life in terms of both its beauties and its horrors. Mm -hmm. And what they tended to settle on was a fragmented account of human experience, mm -hmm. one that really originated in many ways with the ancient Epicureans. So in contrast to Aristotelian teleology, the Epicureans embraced atomism. So the idea that life is not one coherent narrative with parts that relate to each other based on an end goal, but rather a series of thousands upon thousands of disconnected moments, mm. like individual atoms with no necessary meaningful narrative connecting them. Rather, each individual moment, like each individual human being in this scenario, mm -hmm. possesses in itself its own meaning. There might be patterns that we can find or create with these individual moments, but the meaning, the beauty, and the horror of life all comes for high modernists in the uniqueness of each moment experienced and appreciated on its own terms. Mm. So if we look at Mrs. Dalloway in light of this, we quickly recognize that the story is essentially a series of images or snapshots. You have falling droplets, a wrapped up diamond, a glimmer of light, a meeting and a parting, a toss of a coin, a wave on the sea, a kiss, a gift. To appreciate Wolf's style in Mrs. Dalloway, I think we almost need to imagine ourselves stringing together a line of individual pearls as we mm. read. We, we ponder each one of them, looking at one and then maybe another, but we're in no particular order, no particular rush. In fact, just like the character Clarissa, we're seeking to find that we love one of these images, find ourselves filled with the radiance of it. Hmm. Then and only then, I think, Virginia Woolf would say, do we step back from the picture and appreciate the entire book or the entire string of pearls hmm. um, and the way that each one kind of touches on the next and they all lie there as this beautiful composite whole. One more thing I should probably say. Okay. It might seem at first that this Epicurean atomism that I've just described is fundamentally opposed to a Christian worldview. Mm -hmm. Certainly, its origins and its denial of any overarching structure to life, I think, are. But as a literary style and to some extent as a philosophy, I think it's not quite that clear cut. 
Um, I think we should keep in mind that T.S. Eliot, one of the most famous of Virginia Woolf's peers, wrote arguably his very best high modern works after he became a Christian. Mm. Um, And I think a number of Christian influences can be seen even in the novel Mrs. Dalloway, especially in the novel's advocacy for gratitude, for Mm. moments of beauty and human connection, and reverence for the sense of transcendence that can be found in those tiny Mm. individual moments. Okay, that's, that's helpful. Thanks so much. It it really puts this novel in perspective to see its um, literary context this way. So, so thank you for sharing that background. Now, one more brief bit of context I'd like to offer before we dive too deep into analyzing the book itself is uh, Virginia Woolf's own life. I, uh, I won't go into too much detail, but I'll just give a general um, outline of her life and career. So she was born in London in 1882 and lived until 1941. She showed interest in writing um, and a, a talent for it at an early age, although she didn't get her first novel published until she was in her 30s. Um, in her teens and 20s, several close family deaths disrupted her life. Uh, first, her mother passed away in 1895 when Virginia was just 13, and then her eldest sister, who was also a kind of mother figure to her, died um, just two years later in 1897, and then finally her father passed away in 1904 when she was 22. So these tragedies understandably uh, traumatized Virginia, and uh, shortly after her father's death was the first time she attempted suicide. Uh, and not the last, sadly. But several years later, in 1912, she married Leonard Wolf, um, to whom she remained married until her death. And just three years later, her debut novel titled The Voyage Out was published in 1915, when Virginia was 33. Now, the 1920s were probably the peak of her career, uh, or certainly a time when she was uh, prolific, uh, so Mrs. Dalloway came out in 1925, followed by a couple of her other uh, most famous works. To the Lighthouse came out in 1927, and then her novel Orlando in 1928, uh, and her uh, book-length essay, A Room of One's Own, in 1929. Now, her popularity declined in her later years, and probably that combined with the onset of World War II, both contributed to a decline in her mental health in her 50s. And tragically, she died by taking her own life in 1941 at age 59. But she she did leave behind what eventually proved to be an enduring legacy, although it did take a few decades for uh, critics and readers to reevaluate her works and uh, canonize them. But she's now considered a stylistic and thematic pioneer, and so her books are are well worth reading and analyzing. Now, like I said, I have not uh, formally studied Virginia Woolf's works, and Mrs. Dalloway is actually the first of her novels that I've ever read. I've read a couple of her short stories, I think, in college, but that's all. 
So this was my first encounter with her in long form. And um, <laughs> I wasn't a huge fan. I actually tried to read it once, probably a year or two ago, and didn't get super far. <laughs> Really? I, I, I really that. struggled with it. However, I do think a big part of the problem is that I listened to it as an audiobook and it does not translate well that way. No. But I guess I'm just not a huge fan of her style. It's she helped pioneer stream of consciousness, right? That narrative style. And especially in audio form, it's just, at least for me, very easy to get lost in that. <laughs> and I don't know her. I mean, there there's a beautiful a poetry, I think, to her style. Yes, definitely. Um, but it feels her sentences tend to kind of go on and like phrase piling on top of phrase. It's not repetitive. Superfluous? <laughs> it, it maybe it feels a little superfluous, and I think probably part of what's going on is she's giving, she's she's communicating a, a feeling or or a sense of things more than like a strictly literal realistic kind of Absolutely. portrait of the world, more an experience, I guess. Oh yes, definitely. Can you speak to that at all? Because I I don't really get it. Yeah, well, I mean, I think the way she writes demands that you take pauses. And my understanding of her philosophy of experience and the way she is, like you say, pioneering stream of consciousness, mm. I think part of the whole point is that life doesn't go straight through in mm. order at a steady pace with one thought following another one logically, mm -hmm. but that images sometimes randomly come into our heads and trigger other images that if you actually kind of looked at them they have nothing to do with each other, but when they are kind of piled on top of each other, you get new information from seeing them piled on top of each other. And they do have relationships to each other. Sure. Or they do influence how we see the world based on memories and experiences. So I think she's trying to get across that sense that life is not experienced logically necessarily. Mm. Sure. And then the other thing, I'm not, I can't speak as clearly on this, but my understanding from some scholarship that I've read is that especially with Clarissa and Septimus Smith, mm -hmm. she is playing at the boundaries of sanity. Oh, and sure. We, at first we have a very clear idea that Clarissa is the clearly sane one and Septimus Smith is the one who is going insane. Yes. But the way that the images that come to their minds parallel each other and mimic each other's processes. Yes. She's definitely purposefully kind of weaving back and forth between those two stories to make us question what does count as sanity? What does count as insanity? How logical do we have to be in order to consider ourselves sane? Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. And at first I was confused by this, but eventually I did start to think this was intriguing and very effective. The so so obviously the plot the plot all takes place in one day. It's mm -hmm. about Clarissa or Mrs. Dalloway preparing for a party mm -hmm. um, that evening. But then you get both her glimpses into her past mm -hmm. and present, and then you also meet several other characters, both from her past and her present, and the characters kind of converge 
throughout this day, you weave between them, um, and then most of them converge, at least in some way, at the party that night. And so you get a in that one day, you get a glimpse of so much more. You get a glimpse yes, of like yes. Clarissa's whole life, and in a sense, the whole lives of all the yeah. other characters that she meets as well. Anyway, but then the 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 storytelling style that she uses to accomplish that, like I said, at first confused me, um, but then I realized was was actually pretty cool. The way she follows Clarissa at the beginning of the day, you know, walking through town, and she's like thinking about different things, and. Um, and then she kind of jumps heads to another character who just, you know, just passes by or maybe Clarissa talks to for a minute. And then you follow that character for a while and get their, like, existential life crisis. And then, I don't know, she just kind of jumps heads yeah, in a way that a way of putting it. was hard for me to get used to. But then when I did, it was it was neat how seamlessly it happened, I guess, and how many different perspectives then you got Hmm. um all in one day i do think the theme of meeting Mm. is the central theme of the book due to my opinion clarissa's whole goal Mm -hmm. in life really but certainly in her parties is Mm -hmm. to bring people together and Ah. so at that very opening reflection that she has on what she calls life she thinks about so-and-so over in South Kensington and -and so-and-so in Westminster and how if they could only be brought together. And she loves bringing together as many people as possible. And I think, so that's in a, in a party setting, but then I think that fits the genre and the form that Virginia Woolf chooses that Mm. she is following one character who happens to meet another. And it might not even be a conscious meeting, but they pass by and you jump into the head of this person Mm -hmm. and all of Clarissa's important memories are about moments where two people met or communicated in some really significant way. Mm-hmm. That's even how she interprets Septimus's death. She says death was a final attempt to communicate, a final attempt to be heard, mm. um, which we can talk about that if you want. Yeah. Yeah, let's do that. Let's, uh, let's talk more about Septimus Smith. Um, so, of course, he is probably, you would say, the other main character other than Clarissa? Yeah, he's definitely Clarissa's foil. Okay, sure. Yes, that's a great way to put it. Um, and he has, he fought in World War I, which this book is set shortly after World War I. And so he's home now with basically PTSD. Um, he, he sees things, he hears things, especially uh, he had a good friend who died in World War I and that kind of haunts him. Mm-hmm. So... Talk about Septimus Smith and how he is a foil for Clarissa, how the themes come out. Um, I think his is always the parallel reality to Clarissa's. Okay. And a parallel reality that in many ways seems to contradict her experience and her reality. Mm-hmm. But I think Virginia Woolf is lining those two up on purpose. Um, you could certainly see a very class-oriented distinction. Yes. He is lower class. He is, in many ways, at the bottom of society, has been neglected. And he certainly has all of the tragedy of being alone. Yes. And conversely, Clarissa, yes, she is afraid of death. And that haunts her at times throughout the novel. 
But overall, of course, hers is a very cushy life. And most of the things that trouble her are pretty trivial compared to what troubles him. But I think at the same time, we're meant to see all the ways in which they are very similar. Mm. And to let the story of Septimus influence how we see Clarissa and Clarissa's experience of the world influence how we read Septimus as well. Mm -hmm. So they're both haunted by memory, especially of really important people in their lives. Mm -hmm. Their meetings with those people have never left them uh, in the form of their memory and shape the present in so many ways. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I think the last thing, I think we already talked about this, one of the other big themes that comes from the parallelism between Septimus Smith and Clarissa is that of sanity and insanity. Mm. I think Virginia Woolf wants to, being someone who struggled with mental illness herself for many years, I'm sure I've read that she felt there were very specific insights and realities and truths that someone who struggles with mental illness can see and communicate, which people who at least think they are sane don't have access to. So she almost interpreted some forms of mental illness as clairvoyance or having a prophetic gift in some sense. And so I think she wanted to bring that out with sometimes Clarissa is downright ridiculous, Mm. even though we would all call her sane. And sometimes Septimus says some really crazy things, but they're definitely true. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) Yes. The wisdom of fools, which is kind of a Shakespearean. Yeah. um, Idea, which I would love to talk about Shakespeare, especially. So Othello is, is referenced and Cymbeline. Yes. There are two Shakespearean quotes in the novel that get repeated again and again. Mm-hmm. And I think they represent the two approaches to life that Clarissa waffles between throughout the novel. And then I think she ends up deciding which one she's going to follow at the end. Yes. Um, the first one is from Othello. And I believe it goes, uh, if it were now to die, it were now to be most happy. Mm-hmm. So Othello has just come through this terrible storm arrives home to see his beautiful wife, Desdemona. And he feels he's come through death into life um, in this beautiful moment of meeting. And he knows that anything that comes after this can't possibly be as beautiful and happy as this moment. So he would just be fine dying right now. And I think for Clarissa, she, she thinks of this quote often in connection with her childhood and with moments of meeting in her past that have been especially beautiful. Mm -hmm. And for her, it represents this abandon, not an actual longing for death, but a, a, such a full plunging into the moment of beauty and of connection that it doesn't really matter what comes next is kind Mm. of the idea. And even death wouldn't be that scary because it would just crystallize this treasure, this moment that she has enjoyed. In contrast to that, there's this quotation from Cymbeline, which ironically comes from a funeral dirge for a person who is pretending to be dead, and they will momentarily wake back up and be alive. <laughs> the quote that comes again and again throughout the novel, fear no more the heat of the sun, nor the stormy winter's rages. And in this quotation, we have a very different approach to life. It's a numbing, try not to fear anymore. The way Virginia Woolf develops it, I think it's actually an approach to life that is deadening. 
how it fits with Clarissa's story is that as an adult, she started to have to face the fear of looming death. She's just come out of an illness at the beginning of the novel and death keeps coming back to her and worrying her. Um, and in response to that, instead of embracing life with abandon and disregard for death, she has started to try and become more stoic, essentially. So she talks about Lady Bexborough um, as the woman she most regards now as an adult. Mm-hmm. And this woman received a telegram about the death of her son in the battlefield and was holding it in her hand while she opened this huge bazaar for people mm. uh, rather than, you know, mourning it <laughs> yes. in private. And for Clarissa, this is early in the novel, how she thinks she can cope with the fear of death. Be stoic, don't be afraid, you know, kind of numb your feelings, essentially. Mm-hmm. And at the end, I think, is when she chooses the Othello approach. Mm-hmm. Um, and that comes from hearing about Septimus Smith's suicide, mm-hmm. ironically. Yeah. So each of these Shakespearean quotations play with this duality of life and death and how we can approach life in a deadening way or how we can approach life in disregard for the fear of death. And we can talk about why this is quite complicated, but for Clarissa, I think she doesn't hear very much about Septimus Smith or about his death. She's never encountered him. She has no idea of his circumstances. Mm -hmm. But the pure fact that he didn't fear death and chose it, I think inspires her to live life to the fullest and Mm -hmm. stop fearing death. And so I think it does give her courage now, obviously, that's, that feels very callous to say, and this novel's written without reference to a loving and sovereign God who alone has the authority to create life and bring it to an end. And I, I don't think Virginia Woolf ever says that Septimus's suicide is a good thing. Sure. It's a tragedy. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. She doesn't glorify it at all. It's very gruesome and horrible. I think within the worldview that we have in the novel, it feels like this horrible, almost inevitable thing that's going mm. to happen. Yes. But at the same time, there is a lesson that Clarissa takes from it. And that is simply the lesson not to fear death. And I, I do agree with the novel, certainly, that that is a fundamental necessity for living a good life. Um, mm-hmm. But as Christians, our courage to face death comes not from another human being's tragic circumstances, but rather from the death and resurrection of the divine savior with whom we are united eternally. Yes, absolutely. And helpful to bring that counter perspective in. Um, But Virginia Woolf is still holding that sort of tension Mm -hmm. and she's not necessarily uncomfortable with the tension of, you know, tragedy and courage or, um, Absolutely. Yeah, embracing this moment, even with tragedy, right alongside it. In a sense, I think to try and resolve a contradiction like that would be against her worldview. Mm. Because if life is made up of single individual meaningful moments of either horror or beauty, they're always going to bump up against each other. And we have to acknowledge both as true. And you can only try to resolve that contrast if you put in an overarching narrative that makes some things more important than others or... Sure. Yeah. Um, And I think it's very telling a letter that Virginia Woolf wrote 
to a friend when she was in the middle of writing Mrs. Dalloway. Um, And if it's okay, I'll just read a little quote from that letter. Absolutely. Um, She asks, how does one make people talk about everything in the whole of life so that one's hair stands on end in a drawing room till each sentence tears its way like a harpoon and grapples with the shingles at the bottom of the reader's soul? And you just see what a huge project she's taken on Mm. in writing Mrs. Dalloway. She's trying to get at the bottom of her character's souls and thereby reach the bottom of her reader's souls. Mm. She's attempting to touch on everything in the whole of life, both the mundane sitting in a drawing room and the horrible making one's hair stand on end. Mm -hmm. And she wants every single sentence to have this piercingness to it. She calls it a harpoon, a grappling hook. So I think it's no wonder that we struggle to interpret the book (laughs) and we grapple with really difficult questions Mm -hmm. like suicide and like human connection and how that's possible in a broken world. Mm -hmm how tragedy brings life and death to different people at different moments. Um, I think it's a, it's a masterful work that is demanding for us to read it slowly and carefully and possibly many, many times <laughs> before we can yes. really get a sense of the depths of what she's trying to communicate. Mm. Yes. Yeah, I started to get that sense kind of as I was finishing the book. And it's been really, really helpful to chat about it because it's, there are so many layers and I know I would get so much more from rereading it, especially from reading it, not as an audiobook, um, as I've mentioned. (laughs) But yeah, there's just so many different angles and and she is trying to plumb the depths Mm. of human nature in a way that is challenging. Yeah. From whatever worldview you, you come. Absolutely. So thanks so much for discussing this with me. Well, thank you so much for your questions. They really helped me to solidify my own thoughts as well. Oh, great. Great. That's what the discussion's all for. And I'm glad to have someone who, who appreciates her a little bit more than I did naturally <laughs> to really help bring out what's, you know, what's valuable about the work, what it contributes. So thanks so much for that. Well, that's a wrap for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, Now, Lorray has been with me on the podcast twice before in episodes two and seven, discussing the books Little Women and Persuasion, respectively. So if you enjoyed today's discussion, check out those earlier episodes to hear her thoughts on those classics by Louisa May Alcott and Jane Austen. Next week, for my penultimate episode of Unknown Friends Season 1, that's crazy, I will be reviewing a novel by a contemporary writer, Anthony Doerr, a novel published in 2014 and titled All the Light We Cannot See. This is a fascinating, stunningly written book, and I'm so looking forward to telling you more about it. So please join me next Wednesday for that discussion in episode 29. In the meantime, if you want to learn more about me and my writing, just head to my website, kittywamproductions.com, linked in the episode description. I'll see you next time! 